And so I spent a day as like the thing on the internet. I was the viral kid on the internet for that day. But it was a really wild feeling of like watching this thing so fast catch fire and get passed around and realizing that my life might never be the same. Welcome to the Mike Squires and Friends podcast. I'm your host, Mike Squires, and today I'm joined by my good friend, George Watsky. Now I'm super excited to have George on the podcast because I have toured with George for years. We talk about George's album trilogy, Complaint, Placement, and Intention, which I actually worked on. We talk about a bunch of eras of George's career, from Cardboard Castles to Warped Tour to Times Infinity to the epic rap battles of history. We talk about the viral video that changed his life. I also talked to George about getting the Guinness World Record for longest freestyle. But to be honest with you, I'm just excited to have George in the greatest state of all time, Connecticut. Now listen, if you want to support the Mike Squires and Friends podcast, all you got to do is hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, drop a comment, and if you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, hit that download. It goes a long way and really helps me out. And with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Mike Squires and Friends. George, I'm happy you're here, dude. <laughs> hey, it's good to be here. How's the family reunion tour, dude? Family reunion tour is great. We're six stops into a 14-stop tour, Ooh. and it's been awesome. It's it's not like any other tour that I've ever done before, but super, super happy with how it's all worked out. Yeah. Well, because I'm catching you in the middle of a tour run, I want to hop right into it, dude. Let's get straight into the album trilogy, mm-hmm. dude. So how did the concept of the album trilogy first come to be? So I finished Times Infinity and did a music video for all the songs, and I finished those music videos in 2017, and I wanted to do a project that felt even bigger than it in some ways, but I didn't want to spend six or seven years working on one, like, 37-track album, and so I decided I wanted to do these pieces of it where people would get the first piece— but not realize there was going to be this much bigger project that they were going to get a little bit at the time. So uh, I wanted to have people keep being surprised by these new elements of it. So the idea was we put all the three album covers together and you can read across the middle of it. And I was trying to work it out on a piece of paper, but every time you get one word, one letter off, the whole thing falls apart. So I decided to work with my friend who's a data scientist to actually build an algorithm to title these records. And it was always going to be an experiment. Like if the words aren't cool. If they don't resonate with me, I'm not going to do it. But, um, you know, he basically built this word puzzle algorithm and it spit out these words, complaint, placement, and intention that I instantly like really bonded with and decided to spend the next six years of my life making a record trilogy, unpacking what those words meant to me. Yeah. When you released complaint, how hard was it to bite your tongue that this was part of a bigger picture? Oh, dude, I hated it. I hate keeping secrets like I I wanted to tell everyone because there were people who were like you know you come off times infinity you put out this like wimpy nine track record like what's the deal you know or expecting a grander vision and I was like oh y'all like just fucking wait bro but I I knew that if I said that I would ruin the entire uh no pun intended like intention of the whole project and so yeah it was horrible but uh I had to do it yeah and you know let's talk about the intention tour that's the tour that just happened Mm -hmm. and you know, people watching might not know this, but maybe they do. But I've actually toured with you a lot, dude. Yes, that's, sir. That's how, you know, we connected. Well, we've connected before then, but, you know, we spent most of the time on the road. Yeah. So let's talk about the roller coaster of what the intention tour was, dude, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I guess it's hard to talk about the intention tour without starting with the placement, the placement tour. tour. Yeah. Right, because that was supposed to be R.I.P. Um, 
a March 2020 tour, and we all know what happened in March 2020. I was in rehearsals for this beautiful tour that had like these multiple stops in the cities that I love. And we were playing like album shows in different cities. It's just like, you know, I constructed this perfect bird nest of a, of a tour. And then we're in rehearsals like three or four days in just watching the news get worse and worse until ultimately um, lockdown goes into effect. And like three days before the first date, we, um, we scrap it. And then I just spent the whole, most of the pandemic determined to make that tour happen and people held their tickets for like two years we rescheduled it and then delta came and then we rescheduled it and then omicron came so there were ultimately three reschedulings of that tour the placement tour never happened but it took so long that i had this new record um, that you were there helping me make and so it was fitting because the second record got washed out by the pandemic but we got to come back and have this moment of closure and catharsis and do the intention tour, which also kind of represented the the middle tour that never happened. So it was really awesome. We did it, what, this past like spring and summer and yeah. flawless victory. It was awesome. Dude, I remember that FaceTime, dude, because when you FaceTime me and originally told me the tour was canceled, I was on the road with Greaves and the mm, holdup. Right. And uh, when you FaceTime me, I just remember you being in the truck very dismal lighting, and it was like the most somber phone call of all time, dude. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I think I was in a Walmart parking lot because I called Greaves right after that, too. Um, and Greaves was more upset than I was. Oh, man. I saw that firsthand. I mean, family that, to take care of. Yeah, that whole, the vibe. The second you called yeah. and let your news go, we kind of, we knew our ship was sinking at that point. Yeah, I don't think he had fully, like, wrapped his mind around, like, oh, this is, like, happening. Like, the world is shutting down right now. It was horrible. Yeah, I, I packed all my stuff. It was raining that day in L.A. when we canceled our rehearsal. And um, at the time, I was driving this crappy 82 Ram. And I loaded all my gear and road cases and put them under a tarp. And we're, in, like, loading out in the rain. And my fucking electronics are getting wet. And, yeah, it was hard to talk about, complain about your pandemic situation, knowing that many other people had it way worse. Um, yeah. But it sucked ass. It, it was... Awful. But you're not the type of person to stay down, George. So I want to talk about the the freestyle, dude. The Guinness World Record freestyle. Yeah. What inspired you to do that, dude? Well, so we decided to do that record-breaking stream. I think it was May when we did it. So, okay, let's do the timeline. Tour gets canceled in March. April, um, I go to live with my manager, Jeff. Um and my girlfriend, Amber, in this house in the Hollywood Hills. And um, we're just there for a month, like many people were, early pandemic, 8 p.m., people are banging on pots. And um, at the same time, my whole touring crew is out of work and didn't get to do this job, this gig that was supposed to be this big, you know, decent chunk of change. Um, and we're trying to figure out how to sort of make the best of the refund situation. There's a lot of companies like, you know, Ticketmaster, what's up? Like all these places that were not issuing refunds yet. So I'm going to take a, a slight detour to complain about ticketing services while also acknowledging that promoters were underwater in this period. Like it was really hard for everybody because no one had the mechanisms in place to like have all these shows go down at the same time. And so I, when people bought a ticket, I don't get any of that money until after we've played the show. And so... We have these shows we haven't played. 
people have given their money, sometimes bought plane tickets and stuff. And, and all these people are asked out because the tours are canceled, uh, you know, wanting refunds and, and them potentially being out of work too. Uh, so this is a horrible situation and, and people can't get refunds. My band and crew haven't been paid. And it's just like trying to think of anything that we can do to make the situation better. And I don't know exactly where the idea came from, but I think it was just, well, let's do a stream. And then the next question was, well, how can we make a stream that people are going to care about? Well, what do people care about? World records. Well, what can I do that, you know, how could I break a world record? Well, if I try to do like break the record for fastest rapping ever, the stream's going to be like 25 seconds long. So that's not going to work because we're not going to generate donations. It needs to be a long stream. So I need to do a stamina record. It kind of was obvious. I mean... This is a record a few indie rappers have broken over the years. Um, Murs held the record at one point. Um, Chitty from Chitty Bang held the record at one point. And they, were, and they were things that got blog attention. So once that popped into my head, I was like, I could do that. Because it doesn't even need to be good. You just need to rhyme bat, cat, mat, hat. It's more a stamina challenge. It's a stamina challenge. That's that's really, a, once you can like string a few rhymes together, that's really what it is. Nobody's with a notebook being like, well, that multi was kind of weak right there. Like, I don't know about that metaphor, bro. Like, yeah, dude. Yeah. But I also want to say like, you know, you did something that most artists that like run a team wouldn't do is that you helped your like team, including myself during a time that like everyone needed it. So one, I'm just going to thank you for that off rip again, dude. But like. For those that don't know, George did me a super solid when that happened, you know, and he basically made me go through the pandemic like unscathed. Right on, man. Well, the the Watsky PPP loans were uh, in effect <laughs> before the government got them together. I mean, honestly, that was one of the coolest things I've ever done in my career. Just the way it made me feel. I mean, I think that I was struggling to feel a sense of purpose and to feel like in that situation where none of us had control that we could have any kind of control at all. So it did give me a sense of like, you know, I could do something to control my destiny in this horrible moment to, you know, try to do something for the community that I'm a part of. And then to have this wave of support from the internet and to have a live stream kind of feel like a live show in a way I've never experienced where like, it really felt like people were behind me and had my back. It was really just a beautiful experience. So a lot of the first records from Intention were actually made on the Pink Lemonade tour. Mm -hmm. I wanna talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so the Pink Lemonade tour was the tour that happened when the third cancellation of the placement tour happened. And it was really close to when we were supposed to go out on the road. So we couldn't cancel the bus contract and people were, pretty in my band, pretty much packing their bags to go. And we decided that we would take the wreckage of the tour and rebook it to music studios and then make a music studio tour and work on songs. And so we took the tour bus out and we hopped from studio to studio and me and Chukwudi Hodge, uh, Max Miller-Lauren, Aaron Carmack, Camila Recchio, uh, Kush Modi, Mikey Squires. Let's go. Uh, and Ellie Christie, we cruised around and went from city to city and, and worked on music. And a lot of those songs made it onto Intention. So the, the idea was because the Intention album is very much like a band album, an album that represents these 12 years that I spent touring with these awesome people. And so it was, it was cool to be able to infuse that energy into the record in this like very organic way. 
Yeah. And I want to talk to you about searching, maybe not necessarily the mm-hmm. record itself, but like where you were staying at the time you, we worked on searching and why. So after I got done with the Pink Lemonade tour, I rented a warehouse in uh, the industrial core of L.A., a big, big warehouse that I could use as a place to stage and build music video sets because I love carpentry and I got more into it during the pandemic. And Mike Squires, who's interviewing me right now, came out to stay with me a little bit um, towards the end of the intention project. So this is like right before I go into the mixing phase. And I think, so it's an 18 song album. I think I got like 15, 16 songs at this point. And I heard this song, Sarah Smile, somewhere. I can't remember if it was before or after you got there. I think it was before. I think it was before. And then you got there and I said, Mike, like there's this Hall & Oates sample that like I really love and I can't really remember hearing it flipped in the same way into a hip hop song. So like you want to make, we talked about making some music together while you were out there. Yeah. And so late night while we were working on the Aw Shit video, we made some time to just make a track together. And, um, you know, you and I just stayed up late and made a song. I I think we pretty much made it like from beat to chorus to verses in like two or three days or something. Yeah. Sitting there, yeah. It was pretty quick. And it, I just remember after we finished it, just like we were at like an Airbnb after the fact and we were just like, we played it on repeat for like yeah. at least an hour, dude, or something like that. I love that song. I'm disappointed I never made a music video for it, but you know, we can't be doing 18 music videos anymore. Yeah. I definitely want to talk to you about that later. But one thing I want to talk to you right now about is one of the most elaborate things that you've ever done. Mm. You did a treasure hunt along a worldwide treasure hunt alongside your album. Yeah. Can we talk about that? I know that's like a big thing to talk about. Yeah. Well, we can talk about it. The, the paradox of talking about something that's supposed to be like kind of secret is that one, like I like, I like, I don't like to keep secrets at the same time. Like you got to protect the mystique a little bit. So I'm going to preface talking about the treasure hunt in a way that's going to be confusing for people that are watching this that don't know what's up. Because there's a character that's running the treasure hunt whose name is Tommy Designer. And to the average person, he might look a lot like me. (laughs) He might sound a lot like me. Uh, He might tweet or Instagram post a lot like me, but his name is Tommy designer. He is not me. He's the person running this treasure hunt. If y'all catch my drift. So Tommy designer created this treasure hunt. And, uh, from what he tells me, it's been a really elaborate, complicated experience. He went around the world and hid these wooden puzzle boxes in a bunch of different places and collaborated with a guy named, um, Sandy Weiss, who runs a company called the mystery league to create these incredibly elaborate puzzles to have this just experiential project that goes alongside the intention record so that there could be a a part of my record that was really about adventuring and going back into the world and mystery. And you know, me and Tommy, like what we're into is just maximalism. And this kind of at the core of what I do, I feel like if someone asks me what makes me, me and what makes what I do, what I do, it's like to latch onto an idea that seems a little audacious, that seems maybe a little silly um, and a little over the top, that maybe is like almost not a good idea, but because it's almost not a good idea, it's actually a great idea if you hyper invest in it and bust your ass doing it. So that's kind of just exactly what the treasure hunt is. Yeah. I don't know if you want to go more into like, you know, some of the places that Tommy hid these treasure boxes and... Yeah, I could. Well, I don't know exactly when this podcast is going to air. So 
things may have changed by the time you hear this message. Uh, but basically, nine boxes were hidden around the world. Uh, let me see if I can rattle them off. And I can't rattle off the ninth one because it hasn't been found yet. So eight of the nine have been found in the world. It's been almost a year people have been working on this. Uh, we have Delaware, Idaho, which was discovered accidentally by a hiker who reported it to the group. Uh, Florida slash the Bahamas, which was hidden in the shipwreck of the SS Sapona. Uh, Georgetown, California, in this thing called a Nelder Plot, these concentric rings of pine trees. Uh, one was hidden in Cornwall in the UK. Namibia in Africa, uh, Mumbai in India, Perth, Australia in a cafe called The Moon. We hid it under a trap door in their cafe. So that's eight of the nine and number nine, TBD. It's insane, dude. And, you know, so did I go with – I went with Tommy Designer or like – I mean, yeah, I think I think you went around the world with Tommy Designer. Yeah, so yeah. – so, you know, I had the opportunity to go with Tommy Designer to two of these locations, and uh, I went to the Sapona one, mm -hmm. and that trip is what inspired me to start hitting the gym, dude. No shit. Yeah, because I remember swimming there, and I was like, all right, all right, I got I to gotta step it up. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. Tommy told me all about that trip. So Mike went with Tommy uh, to Delaware. No, first you flew to Florida. We flew to Florida, yeah. And uh, took a ferry out to this, uh, out to the Bimini Islands, and then another boat out to this shipwreck. Yeah. Swam with the sharks, snorkeled, <laughs> hit a little prism inside the rusting hull of an old ship in a reef, like, hundreds of miles off the coast. Uh, yeah, crazy ship, Mike. You're a bad motherfucker. Dude, it was definitely one of the most elaborate things I've been a part of. Yeah. But another thing I want to talk to you, because you talked about Namibia a little bit. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about the advanced placement video. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, what was that experience like? So a few years ago, um, after coming out of Times Infinity and feeling like, you know, I love making these big production videos. And for me, people might see one of my videos and not be able to distinguish it. You know, like you don't know when an artist is necessarily an indie artist or a label artist these days because an indie artist can make a video look pretty damn good if you know the right people and have good cinematographers and I take a lot of pride in my music videos, but it's also expensive to put 30 people on a set in Los Angeles. And I was starting to feel like, well, just having a big glossy video does not make a good video. And a lot of my friends who have been working in Hollywood, like some of them are now working on real sets as opposed to when we first got out to LA and we were just doing gorilla shit around town. Um, it's harder for them to get excited about a project. and and. I miss the feelings of the first music video sets that we were on when we got to LA and like, you know, the early 2010s. And so I wanted to, to construct a different way to shoot a music video and find a, a different way for there to be like visual value in it, not just necessarily from the money you put in. And, and since I love adventures, this ties back into that kind of love for puzzle hunting and adventuring. Um, I was like, well, maybe me and two of my friends, we can bust it down to a skeleton crew, get a couple people that love to backpack and love to travel, but also that the three of us could make a really solid bare bones music video crew together. We put our gear on our back and we throw a dart at the map and we pick a place that has really great visual interest and we let the landscape be the star of the show. So Namibia has these sweeping landscapes, 
One is like the background of an OS. I, I think it's OS Sahara probably, um, even though that's not the Sahara Desert. Uh, no, it's, it might be Mojave. They use these big red sand dunes from Namibia, and there's these trees that look like Dali paintings coming up in this place called Sosuvle. And uh, so me, my friend Mike Dempsey, and Jess Dunlap, who's the cinematographer, we brought all our gear. I had my costume designed before I went. We had this hair piece we had to put on, and um, and I learned to stilt walk. I wanted to talk about that, dude. Yeah, so... The idea was we would take this location and then we would reverse engineer the concept of the video from the location. So we knew we were going to shoot this thing in this clay pan uh, with these big scraggly Salvador Dali trees. So then uh, Mike and it was kind of a brainstorming session. We were like, well, maybe we can make a character that, you know, really lives in this world. And and Mike loves elongated forms. He loves to, um, you know, stretch people's arms and legs out. And so we thought, well, maybe it can be a giant that's got this curly hair that looks like the trees. And, um, and so maybe there's a character that's got these really long legs. And, and my thing is like, when you get a seed of an idea, how can you take the seed of that idea and explode it out into like the biggest, funnest version of that idea? So oh, I want long legs. Well, well, I should be fucking stilt walking. Well, I don't know how to stilt walk. Well, I got to learn how to stilt walk. Well, how tall can I be? Well, how tall can we make the stilts? Like, what is the absolute limit of what we can do? And let's go up to that. So I learned to stilt walk. I went to circus classes. I bought these tiny little stilts and then took them apart, went to Home Depot and bought the longest pieces of wood I can and put the <laughs> stilts back together. And then we flew the stilt. We, we had a costume designer come in and build a costume around the stilts and flew to Namibia with them. And Mike and Jess lifted me up in the salt pan and there were like Chinese tourists taking their wedding photos, like taking pictures of me on the salt <laughs> pan. And, and I ate shit too right there in, in front of them too. Just Damn. once, just once I hit the ground hard. But you get, you bounce back. I did. But after I fell in the salt pan, I was never the same still walker. Mm. I got to tell you, I never got my confidence back. Uh, that's what we call character development, dude. I was just afraid. I started... I started like wiling on those stilts, man. I was like running, I was dancing. I was like, man, I'm fucking doing this shit. And then I thing is when you catch a toe on a stilt, there's no coming back from it. Cause you can't get your feet under you again. Mm. And you have a long time to think about how that ground is going to feel when you're on the way down. <laughs> <laughs> dude, I want to bring it back a little bit, dude. So you entered as a slam poet. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you. What was one of the first times you saw success in slam poetry? Yeah, so I was a little youth poetry kid in the Bay Area in this organization called You Speaks. Shout out, You Speaks. Um, and I did their open mics and their slams, and I, I found this great community of young people that were interested in poetry. And I was about 15 when I started, a sophomore in high school. And success is, is subjective. I was always a competitive kid. I like to try to win the slams. They're a competition. This is, is original poetry judged on a scale of one to 10. So it's, you know, you want to hear those tens. And, um, I didn't win the first few years. You got to finish like top five or six to make the team that goes to nationals. And so my first year I didn't make it, but the second and third year I, I made it, but didn't win the slam. And, um, you know, I just kept coming back and I, I loved to do it. And then there was this old TV show called Deaf Poetry Jam. I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, it was on HBO. It's actually called Russell Simmons Presents Deaf Poetry, but everyone calls it Deaf Poetry Jam. Um, and it was on from like the early 2000s until 2007. And I'd always wanted to be on it because 
sometimes they would send scouts to the youth poetry slams that I was part of and pluck a kid out and put them on TV. Um, and so we knew there was a chance if we did really well in the slam that somebody might see us and put us on it. And I got passed over the first few years. Um, but then my final year of the slam and the final year of deaf poetry before it went off the air, I, I got the call and, um, I went to New York and I did a couple poems and yeah, I was on the the seventh season of deaf poetry when I was 20 and, uh, yeah, super, super grateful. That's a little, little bullet point in my resume. I'm very proud of. Yeah. And then you ended up winning. Yeah. Well, so 2006, the year that the deaf poetry people saw me and put me on that show was the year that my Bay area team won the slam. Mm. Uh, I won the youth like competition in the Bay. And then my team from the Bay shout out to the Oh six you speaks team went to the Apollo in New York and we technically won. Although I really have to say for anybody part of the youth poetry community, um, Providence, Rhode Island was really like the emotional winner of that night. They fucking killed it and intentionally disqualified themselves because they were like, fuck it. We're, there's some rumors about r- rules about repeated poems you're not allowed to do. And Providence was like, we just want to throw our best poems up in front of this audience and we don't care if we win. So like they beasted and would have won. I think they probably won on points, but got disqualified because they repeated poems. So I'm the technical like 2006 group national youth poetry slam champion but like i gotta put an asterisk there for providence because you know they crushed I, it i see y'all i see you know all these years later i i know i know what's up yeah so then at what point do you start transitioning into your artist career like mm. the music career i started doing music even earlier than i started doing spoken word mm. it's just no one was listening to it so like I was one of those kids, just like so many of us in Fruity Loops and Garage Band and, and all those programs. I started recording with my band, Invisible Ink, like really early on. But we were just making bedroom music. And um, then I had that credit on Deaf Poetry, which allowed me to start making money and getting professional gigs, playing college campuses as a spoken word poet. So at that point, I was doing gigs and venues and, and touring the country. But... I wasn't taken seriously for my music. I was really determined to make that happen. And so um, when I got out after after I graduated college to California, I was just trying to figure out, like, how can I make this happen? How can I make this transition work? Uh, so I kind of engineered a viral video with my friends back in 2011. And that was really what drew a lot of people to my music. The, the goal was to get eyeballs to do this quirky video that people would click on, uh, Watsky fast rap, Watsky raps fast, which was originally called pale kid raps fast. And just, you know, it was an engineered viral video that succeeded beyond our expectations. I got on Ellen, I got on a few late night shows and, um, and a lot of, and then I had a bunch of music videos on deck that was my original music. So the goal was to divert that attention as quickly as I could away from this silly viral video uh, to my music music. And and it worked decently well. I mean, you know, we built a touring career off that. 2012 went out on our first tour and, um, you know, with the band and I never looked back. I, I still do my spoken word, but I was able to play music venues from then on. Yeah. What does that moment feel like, though, where you're like, you know, you're starting to see like people starting to pay more attention? It was crazy when so my friends that I was living with at the time, Jenna Jackson and Kush Jackson's a director and my friend Jess um, 
shot that video. And it was just like, you know, I'd never experienced that. The scale of virality was different in 2011. And so I spent a day as like the thing on the internet. Like I was the viral kid on the internet for that day. And I had my my day where, you know, that happened. And now with how many views happen on TikTok and how overwhelming it is, it's, it's a little different because virality is exploding, you know, little volcanoes erupting all the time. But it was a really wild feeling of like watching this thing so fast catch fire and get passed around and realizing that my life might never be the same. So it was very gratifying and then quickly was like, oh, this might be a little bit too successful because I don't want to get pigeonholed as the fast rap kid. There's so many, you know, I spent four or five years before that doing narrative spoken word that like, I was like, yo, like I'm more than this. At the same time, that's what I wished for. So uh, I'm grateful for it. It, it. With the benefit of hindsight, would I've played that moment a little bit differently? Probably. I don't think I would have gone on Ellen, to be honest. Um, but I don't have the benefit of hindsight. I, I did it as best I could in that moment. And, and I'm really glad that it happened. Yeah. And you're saying you wouldn't have gone on Ellen because it brought more attention to the fast rapping aspect. And because I didn't have control over the way she presented me. I think that when you have spent so long, not having that kind of exposure opportunity and suddenly you have it, you, I I won't say you, me, I was the one in that moment. I didn't like realize that those opportunities might be something that I could control and that I could determine the way I wanted to present myself to the world. And, and a show like Ellen or like other late night shows, they have their, what they're trying to do and what they're trying to do might not fit into what I have to do. She's bringing on viral people and presenting them as the viral flavor of the moment. And, and to be fair, she gave me an interview. She brought me back on the show, but like Ellen's not the best format to present yourself as like a well-rounded artist. If you're not being presented as an artist on that show. And so I think that in, in hindsight, I might've been like, well, I would love to come on your show, but if I can perform that song and an original song Mm. and maybe they say, no, maybe they say like, no, we don't have time for that. You don't have the leverage. Um, but the worst that happens is I continue trying to build in another way. Um, so yeah, like I think that maybe I would have answered some questions differently. I might've, um, immediately retitled the video even faster. Fun fact, it was it was going to be called Squirrely Kid Raps Good before we settled on Pale Kid Raps Fast. <laughs> we were just trying to come up with a viral video name that, like, people would click on. Um, but, yeah, you know, like I said, I, maybe I would have played my cards a little differently, but, like, that's that same mentality of, like, man, if I was, like, in my body now and I was playing Little League, like, I'll be cranking homers, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. We don't get to be our older, wiser versions of ourselves in those moments, so. So I got a photo I want to touch on very quickly. Uh... You had an awkward experience with Modest Yahoo? Oh, yeah. Yeah, on Deaf Poetry, I was he was on my episode. Yeah, no, I just saw it. I was like, so what happened there? Like, how did that happen? I don't know how awkward the experience was for him. I mean, it's a hella awkward looking photo. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. I had to throw my ch in the hella shout out um, in Happy Hanukkah right now. Happy Hanukkah. Probably not anymore by the time y'all watch this video. But um, <laughs> yeah, so Modest Yahoo was fully in his dressing as an orthodox, I believe he got ordained as a rabbi. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. Please don't, uh, don't come at me on the internet if I'm wrong about that. But you know, he was, he was fully orthodox at that point. 
he may still be, but he's not dressing that any that way anymore. So he had his sideburns and, um, you know, he was fully kitted out and he did his song. I think he did King Without a Crown um, on Deaf Poetry. And I was like mingling backstage and I got my photos. I got my photo with him and most deaf, with me and most deaf. And um, yeah, I put, I put my arm around his back. He looks like completely shell-shocked. <laughs> he might just look like that in general, but I don't know if I'm supposed to touch him. There might be some rules. <laughs> yeah. I, I know if I if I was uh you know, female identified, I definitely would not be supposed to touch him in the orthodox rules, but yeah, you know, uh I don't think he wanted to be in that photo. It's all good. It happens to the best of us, dude. It, it really does. Um another thing I saw because I, I was scrolling through your gram just trying to see like what what don't I know about George because mm. we've obviously spent a lot of time together. How was the show with it with Adventure Club? They're like EDM DJs. That's like Damn, a, you're going. You like scroll back to 2014. Yeah, I went. I made some did some research. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, I don't. You know, I think I got on that Adventure Club bill. So this was Denver because I had a club gig that night, and. For some reason, the promoter in Denver, I'm sure it was AEG, shout out Adam Stroll. They've, they've done all my Denver shows back to 2012. And they decided that, like, they didn't want any shows to compete with the Adventure Club show that night, which was in a basketball arena. So they paid me to cancel, to, to divert my show and put myself on that bill and make my Denver stop as support on the Adventure Club stop. So it was Adventure Club, and then and then I think there was another EDM group called Caked Up. Uh, yeah, I actually know them. You know what I remember from the Caked Up set? We talk about this sometimes. They came out and they had like these air cannons and stuff and all they did was come out and scream over their, their beats and just shout, Denver! Denver! They didn't say one other word the whole night. Just, Denver! <laughs> Shout out Caked Up. Yeah, um, dude. But I think it was... Me caked up Adventure Club. It might have been caked up me and then Adventure Club. And I'm playing with a full band. We're doing like fusion, hip hop, jazz influenced. And you know who made that show work was Anderson Pac. Really? Because he was, this was the 2014 tour. He produced my my 2014 album, uh, All You Can Do. And he came uh, to perform on that tour, his solo music, but also he sang in our band on that tour as a way to make the whole operation work, make the bus bunks work, uh, which in retrospect is so crazy because, you know, he's gone on to be a superstar and play the Super Bowl and do all these amazing things. Uh, but for that moment in time, you know, he was he was on the tour with us and he's just fearless on stage. And he really like, like in a situation like that where I'm playing to a crowd that's not my crowd, I can sometimes, you know, they can see the whites of my eyes and I get afraid. Like these people aren't going to want us to perform for them, but Anderson Pock's not like that. And, and I think it's a big reason that he succeeded to the level he has, you know, he's totally fearless and he really took the mantle at that show of like, no, nah, we're going to be ourselves. And, and look, it's like a EDM crowds. I think fundamentally are not judgmental because they're about plural, like life, peace, love, unity, respect, like enjoying the moment and like being there and partying with people who are in mutual non-judgment. And so I think if you can take that mentality into an electronica show, you know, there's the crossover for jam band scene. They'll fuck with a lot of different types of diverse music if you're just having fun up there. And he really broke the ice and allowed us to have fun on stage for an audience that like 
we could have bombed so hard in front of them. Yeah, it sounds like it would be like, you know, kind of a scary experience because it's just like a different fan base. It is a different fan base, but I really think because he managed to break the ice, it allowed all of us to let our guard down and have fun. And people were jamming. They were they were enjoying the show. And, and then after our set was over, me and the band, like, we just went into the crowd and just, like, partied during the Adventure Club set. And we're, you know, raving it up. It was awesome. No, amazing, dude. I want to talk to you, too. Speaking of Anderson, I know he produced Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Mm-hmm. or one of the producers on there. I want to just talk to you about the moment of Whoa, Whoa, Whoa and that because I know that was a big moment. Yeah. So Whoa, Whoa, Whoa was the last song added to All You Can Do. All You Can Do came out less than a year after Cardboard Castles, and he was really adamant that the album was missing something, and in retrospect, he was so right, and he was just like, dude, you need to just bring the same type of energy that you brought to the fast rap video to one of your songs, and there was a a beat that we'd started working on, myself and and Mikos God, fellow Bay Area uh, musician, uh, And so Mikos had created this chord progression and had the seed of this beat. And a lot of people contributed to the the production of Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. It's it's one of those things where like instead of too many cooks in the kitchen, everybody's flavor just kept making it better. Um, You know, there was uh, drums that got added and um, Julian Lay came in and added this incredible uh, live key stuff and Let's see. All these kids came in and sang the chorus. And I had these bars, this these 16s that existed on other songs that I was like, well, these these really could marry here. I had this chorus and this melody idea. And, and so just at the very end of the All You Can Do um, sessions, we put that song together. And last song on the record became the single and became, I think, you know, maybe my second most successful song. And and one of my favorites for sure. Yeah. You know, from touring with you for years, that song always goes crazy. Like it never misses for me, dude. I love that song. I mean, I mean, it's been on every one of my tour set lists since then. And it's generally been our closer. So yeah, it's a fun one to do. Yeah. I want to, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the epic rap battles of history, dude, mm-hmm. if that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. What was that experience like? Uh, so I think I did Shakespeare first and it was cool, man. I'm a theater kid. Like I like to dress up and and be fun and theatrical. And my favorite thing about getting invited by um, Peter and Lloyd, thank you so much for having me to the epic rap battles was getting to try to write bars in the cadence of these famous poets. Mm. So I did do a doctor who one, no shade whatsoever to um, the doctor who fan base to me, that's the one that I kind of forget about because I didn't grow up on Doctor Who and I don't know the franchise that well. Um, but to do Shakespeare and, and Poe, who have these two really iconic poetic cadences, to nerd out a little bit on poetry cadences. I mean, everyone knows Shakespeare's iambic pentameter, which is an iamb is an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. Is it cool if I nerd out on some stress You can some nerd out, dude, yeah. Yeah, so iambic pentameter is da-da, 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 da-da. And so I, I was, I had a lot of fun putting the, um, putting the rap bars into iambic pentameter. And then I had a lot of fun with, um, with Poe, I believe his cadence from the Raven, the famous poem, quote, the Raven Nevermore is, is trochaic octameter. Um, 
And so I had fun writing the Poe one in, in that cadence too. I got to like get on my rap bar, stress syllable, nerd shit for it. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to be honest with you, George. I followed like a little bit, but you know, I'm like learning. Let, you let, know? Let, me, let me break it down in similar ways. There's, there's different units of stressed and unstressed syllables that have names to them. Okay. Have you heard the term iambic pentameter before? Yeah. Well, an iamb, I-A-M-B is an actual like unit of meter. Okay. And an iamb is an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. Dada. Mm, okay. Dada. So, so. That's an iamb. <laughs> uh, a trochee. Um, grew- is is a stress syllable followed by an unstressed syllable. So, once upon a midnight dreary, da 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 da. You know the stress comes first. I grew up in a very Italian family, so that like it, when you do the da da, I was like, da-da. It, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. But They're all, all over the place. Once you know where to look for d- dactyls, is another uh, meter. But let's talk warp tour a little bit because mm-hmm. I know warp tour is not like your normal headlining tours. How do you think warp tour differs? Well, RIP Warp Tour, I'm so glad to have played it. I really take pride, and, and I don't know if there's anyone else who has this distinction. It's not quite an EGOT, but this is this is the the E-Watts. Um, to have been able to play Deaf Poetry and Warp Tour is a Venn diagram intersection that I feel like very few people have the, the honor of being in the middle of. And I played it in 2014, and I played it in 2017. And... It's crazy. I mean, it was crazy. It no longer exists, but um, it's this wild logistical operation where I don't know how many semi-trucks there are, but it's this convoy that moves from city to city, and it's people call it punk rock summer camp. You're basically going from one city to the next, and you have to be in a bus. Well, some people, crazy people, do it in a van and never sleep, but it's routed so that you basically are traveling overnight and then you wake up in the parking lot of some other arena, and then immediately the stage starts to unfold. You have stages that are actually built into semi-trucks and then just, like, butterfly out, and all your gear's in another truck, and you get up at the crack of dawn, get off your bus and, and help the stage crew build the stage, and then wake up and see where the raffle got you for time slots for that day, and then you go to your booth, and, and I would spend pretty much all day at my, my signing tent, um, you know, meeting people and shaking hands, and... It's an immersive, difficult, smelly, <laughs> germy, awesome, friendly experience, and uh, I had a blast. I'm I'm kind of built for warp tour. I I got that that just grimy tour life in me. So I'm kind of having I don't know if epiphany is the right word, but I just realized you know when I met you, I met you in 2014 in Connecticut at Warp Tour at Warp Tour yeah. because I was doing interviews with College of Music, and, yeah. you know, since then we've become good friends, but I'm like, this is kind of full circle because now here we are back yeah. in Connecticut doing an interview. No, I remember. Was that, that was Hartford, right? It was Hartford, dude. How, how far are we from Hartford right now? Probably like an hour and some change. Can I interview you right now? Real quick. So <laughs> Mike Squires, we're in Connecticut right now, an hour and change from Hart, Hartford in uh, Ridge. No, we're in Danbury right now. We're in Ridgefield, but on Danbury Road. So I that's- see confusing. Yeah. Mike Squires, can you tell me what the greatest state of the 50 states in America is? I mean, without a doubt, it's Connecticut. There's just no debate. Give me three bullet points. Why? All right. We got the best pizza. Oh, (laughs) what? Why? What what was that? That was that was me on behalf of New York. No, no, no. Absolutely not, dude. I won't. won't. I'm not doing that. I'm just doing that on behalf of New York. No, 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 no. I I don't want the second bullet point. (laughs) Fall. Fall. 
Yeah, Autumn. Okay, I, I Vermont think, would like to speak with you. Damn, dude. I Number need three. You to, I need you to relax, Number dude. three. Number three? Yeah. I think just the people, dude. We have some of the greatest people. Greatest people in the world. Yeah. Strong bullet points, Mike Squires. Tell me, if Connecticut was a country, are there any countries in the world you already know the answer. You're asking me a question you know the answer to. A lawyer never asks questions they don't know the answers to. Michael <laughs> B. Squires. If Connecticut were a country, would there be any countries in the world greater than Connecticut? No. So not only is Connecticut the greatest of the 50 states, how about territories? Absolutely not. Puerto dude. Rico's got no, nothing on it. Guam, this is as good as it gets, As George. good as it gets. As, as a principality. Yeah, there's nothing better. You are in the sliver of the best place on earth, dude. You know, I had a conversation in the van yesterday about how I might talk to you about Connecticut. <laughs> and I decided that there was nothing to be gained from me no. taking the counterpoint. I'm in Connecticut right now, and I love how much you love your state. I'll die on that hill. Literally, I will die on a Connecticut hill, dude. <laughs> are there any kills even in Connecticut? We got little little moguls. We don't have mountains, but we got we got hills. You die sure. on a small Connecticut hill. I'm gonna leave it at that. I love how much you love CT, dude. I mean, I'm just thankful to be here, and I love the community, and you know, it's just like a community that's embraced me too. So, Hell yeah, you know, I love it here. All right, I respect it. All right, I'm gonna give you the microphone back. <laughs> Thank you, dude. Uh, let's talk about Times Infinity a little bit. I know we touched on it earlier, but you did a video for every song on the mm-hmm. project. What an undertaking. Yep. I could have a house right now, but instead I made a video for every song on Times Infinity. Yeah. I mean, what was one of the challenges with that process? I mean, the challenge of the process of making all the videos was that it just took fucking forever and it was expensive and there's a lot of songs on that record. Yeah. Um, And I wanted the videos to all have their own unique concept and I wanted them to bleed into each other. There's a lot of videos that have transitional moments that I had to think about in advance. For instance, something like... I did motion control camera, which is a camera that's programmed um, to move uh, on a robotic, you know, grid system, basically. And so at the end of Tiny Glowing Screens Part 3, which is the first song in this record, there's a camera move that wraps around my back. And then at the beginning of Talking to Myself, which is the next song, we did the continuation of that camera move wrapping around the character's back, who's the dancer in that video. And so there were these transitional moments like that that I built into it. Um that I had to really think about how it was going to all flow together. And, um, you know, it was just a big undertaking. It was something that I had to commit months, if not years to, and it was hard. <laughs> and I'll never, I mean, I'm not saying never do that again. I'll yeah. never do that again with my own money, but I would be happy for someone to give me a million dollars to do it again. <laughs> That's very fair, dude. I want to shift uh, a little bit because I remember that you had a studio session. I think it was you... Uh, Chester, Cootie, and Mike. Mm -hmm. How was that studio session, dude? Wow. Um, So I had this session with Chester Bennington and Mike Shinoda really, really quickly before Chester passed away. And it's hard to talk about and it's hard to think about. Um, I think he... Chester found my music during Times Infinity, and I I don't know how he found it, but he resonated with it, and he invited me to do this session, and we talked about touring with Linkin Park together, Um, and because I didn't know him that well and that long, I hesitate to talk a lot about it because I don't want to be vulturing off people who knew him better and and had that longer experience, Um, but he was a really good dude. I mean, crazy that this this group that I'd grown up listening to, whose music I knew so well and loved, uh, was inviting me to collaborate. 
So it's, it was a real honor and it's also really painful to talk about because it never materialized in anything. And, and it was this tragedy, um, of his life and, and for his close friends and family and fans. So yeah, it, it was really awesome to meet him and collaborate with this awesome dude who even at the end uh, of his life, apparently really liked my shit and, and, and it resonated with so crazy brief moment, um, insane circumstance and, and sequence of events and you know, what might've been, I, I really wish that it hadn't unfolded that way. Yeah, no, dude. I remember seeing it happen, you know, cause I, rem- you know, obviously we're homies. So I remember seeing everything happen Yeah, and it was just, I, I remember texting you and just like heartbreak. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I'm not like a closed book about it, but the reason that I don't talk about it that much is because I feel like it's not my story to tell. That's fair. Um, and I don't want to feel like I'm trying to ride the bandwagon off of it. And it's, uh, you know, it's this horrible thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to talk to you too a little bit about the Hamilton mixtape, dude. Yeah. I saw you on there and you know, how did that unfold and come to be, dude? Yeah. So Lynn, I think Lynn Manuel Miranda, I believe found my stuff because at the very beginning of the genesis of Hamilton as a project, Barack Obama had an event in the White House. And I remember this so vividly. Some of my friends performed poetry. I don't know where, where it was in the White House specifically, but he invited poets to perform at the White House. And John Stewart made so much fun of the slam poetry that was there. And I was really upset that The Daily Show was making fun of spoken word at that point. Um, but Lin-Manuel Miranda performed this very early version of Hamilton there. And he met some of the people that I knew from the youth poetry scene. And I think somehow through that, he found my work and um, we started following each other on Twitter many years before Hamilton happened. And, you know, I learned about In the Heights and became a fan of his work. And so then when I was living in New York, working on Times Infinity in the winter between 2015 and 16, um, I was writing this essay collection and I asked Lynn if he would read it and blurb it. And I met him and I walked my manila folder of my essay collection up to the stage door and got to hang backstage. And, and this was as Hamilton was becoming this this massive phenomenon. And he invited me to perform one of these things called Ham for Ham, where like they do a, a performance at the stage door for people that are waiting in line for lottery tickets. Uh, and that was, you know, we sort of just established a, a friendship relationship through that. I performed a guest lot in his show Freestyle Love Supreme uh, a little bit ago and um he invited me to do that thing on the Hamilton mixtape, and, and it's, he's been somebody who has really had my back and and really made a tangible impact on my career. So, Lynn, if there's any chance you happen to hear this, thank you. Like seriously, he he's somebody who I feel like has taken this huge influence he's had and really made an effort to lift up people around him and smaller artists, and he has seriously made a tangible impact on my career. So, really have so much love for his career and, you know, the way that he's turned the influence that he has to good. Yeah, no, that's amazing to hear too. It's always good to hear stories like that too, because I knew that you had like, you know, positive interactions, but I didn't know how big of an impact it made. Yeah. I mean, that blurb that he did for my essay collection alone, I think had a big impact on it being successful. And, um, you know, he just, uh, I think there, there is some crossover between people who fuck with, theater and fuck with rap and spoken word and who truly love those two things as, as a fellow theater kid, like, but 
hip hop lover myself, like I think people who genuinely have love for both those things, there there is an intersection in people who are willing to give my music a chance and people who love Hamilton. So um, yeah, no, he's he's been huge and it's just awesome to know sometimes that someone who has got that much influence and is that big, you know, wants to wield it for smaller artists and, um, you know, not just myself, but he's, he's had a big impact on a lot of people. Yeah. Let's talk about your essay collection too. I know it was a New York Times bestseller, How mm-hmm. to Ruin Everything. What inspired you to do that, dude? Well, um, I love writing and I love all sorts of writing. Poetry was the start of what I do. And it was an opportunity that presented itself. Um, I did not go out seeking to write an essay collection, but uh, someone came to me with the opportunity. And and I think when they brought it to me, the idea was for it to be a little bit more of like a tour memoir. Um, but I really didn't want it to be that. I wanted to write a prose collection that was not about being the memoir of a musician, but was about like the little things that happen in my life, uh, just sort of observational humor and minutia. And um, to show that like I could be a writer in a way that exists outside my music. So while I was working on Times Infinity in New York, I was also writing this essay collection and um, it was a great experience. I worked with a, a woman named Kate Napolitano at, at Plume slash Penguin. She was my editor fantastic editor. And and she was kind of in a way my, like the grad school writing professor I never had. So thank you, Kate, for being an awesome editor and hope I get to write some more prose in the future. I want to talk to you quickly about cardboard castles Mm -hmm. too. You know, do you have a moment from that era that like stands out to you? Mm. I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened during cardboard castles because that was really early in my like gaining momentum phase. It feels like five years were packed into that two-year period of 2013 because we had this studio session that I did with Koosh and Dylan Saunders and Nils Montan at um, this this studio called The Spaceship in LA. And a lot of those songs on that record, I have these vivid memories of like writing Tiny Glowing Screens Part 2 at that studio session and just having it like written in my handwriting on a sheet of paper and then going into the studio room and performing it the first time I ever read it aloud was the was the take that made the album. And that's really rare for me because I'm a perfectionist. And there's always this genuine emotion infused in that. When I started touring with you, it was the Welcome to the Family tour. And what I realized immediately once I got on that tour is this is how tours are supposed to be run. <laughs> this is like a good vibe. Like this is how things are. Spo- but I think the biggest thing that contributes to that, dude, is your leadership, dude. You're a very good leader, and I think you do a good job of treating your team well and things like that. Like, what do you think are some qualities of a good leader? Mm, thank you, man. Well, first of all, appreciate you saying that. That that really means a lot to me. Um, you know, my AKA, I, I don't get called this enough, but I, I'm trying to spread it around, most organized rapper of all time. <laughs> uh, I don't know about greatest, but I'm fucking for sure the most organized rapper of all time. Uh, I, I just, you know, George, I don't you organize. I mean, look, there's method to the madness, man. You do have method to your madness, dude. Like, I remember the checklist. Like, I make the shit happen. That's a, that's true. It doesn't matter how it happens, but it does happen. It's chaos, but like, I I'm gonna pull this shit off because I know where the hotel reservation is supposed to be. I know when we absolutely need to pull up. I know how much gas we need. Like, you know, I, I will flex on that. <laughs> And I think that for me, like knowing the ingredients that needs to go into making something happen that you've never done before is 
the recipe for being able to pull it off. Mm. Like you need to be able to break something down to its component parts to see how to make it happen because something daunting like a tour might feel insurmountable. But then if you say, well, all I need to do is book these venues and can I find a room in Atlanta and can I find a room in Charlotte and can I find a room in Dallas? If you start looking at each of those things, it's like, yeah, I could probably get a room in Dallas that could have me and like, well, yeah, I could probably get a vehicle that can bring me around and yeah, I could probably put this budget together. Like that's how I look at, at mm. all these endeavors. There are things leadership wise that I feel like I'm not particularly good at. Like I am not good at giving the big inspirational speech backstage. Like Cootie is the one who, who can mm. do that. And I think learning for me that like, that's not the kind of leader that I should be because I hang back a little bit more and I like to, you know, the way that I like to lead is by being the one who's willing to lift the boxes with the everybody else. I think that, you know, if you're the kind of person who says, well, I'm, I, I made it to a leadership position, so now I can sit back and let everybody else do the work and I get to call the shots. Like, that's not how I operate. I would rather be like, no, I'm going to volunteer for the worst hotel room assignment and for the box lifting and all that other stuff because I'm part of the team. And that's a huge part of it for me, you know, to never lose sight of the fact that I spent many years not having an audience who fucked with my shit. And now I have that luxury. I have the sustainability that every artist dreams of. So I'm trying to never lose my career because I didn't do the little things. Now, if there are artists out there that are looking to get into becoming an artist or like really trying to level up their game, you know, what's some advice that you could give them mm. that you think would have helped you early on? Well, I don't really have like a George's chicken soup for the aspiring artist soul, but I, I do have like, I guess some bullet point, like kind of things that I think about for myself um, and that I would have told my younger self. And I, the biggest one I think is that you don't have to white knuckle your grind, you know, like grind set is such a thing that I think a lot of us are reevaluating now in terms of how that's going to lead to a happy life. For me personally, the problem is never going to be not working hard enough because that's baked into who I am. But I really need to remind myself to enjoy the process, to take a deep breath, to not be so hard on myself. I think really good work happens when you're relaxed. So if you can try to take that white knuckle work and turn it into hard but relaxed work where, you know, you're saying, well, all I can control is what I learned today, then you're going to be ahead of the game. But by that same token, one thing that I haven't always been good at that I think is so important is fucking reading the manual. Mm. And I'm not just saying like literally reading the manual, but I'm also saying like literally reading the manual. Like if you're learning a hardware or a software before you dive in and like, please learn a whole bunch of hardware and software. Like these are the tools that we make our music with these days and, and do all sorts of art. If you have a tool that you're using to facilitate your artwork, don't start using it before you've read the manual. Like learn all the things. And that's not to say you can learn all the power keys and all the things before you learn it. But like read the manual, read it twice, read it closely, like figure out how to really use your tools in a really in-depth way. If you're not just scratching the surface of your software and your camera and you can really learn the functions of it, you're going to be much better at it. You're going to use it faster and you're going to, all that learning is going to, you know, affect your ability to learn other things. So 
those are two big things. And I think that if you can do that, you know, work hard, figure out what makes you happy and what's fulfilling to yourself and like really try to learn your craft, you're going to be ahead of the game. Yeah. Cause one thing I've known about you, dude, since the beginning, you're very DIY, do it yourself, mm-hmm. like make it happen one way or another. My last question to you is what's next for Watsky? Well, what's next for Watsky might not be Watsky. Watsky's been my stage persona for, I mean, 13 years now. Are you, my last name's been my persona, and it's like Watsky is sort of this elevated, confident version of myself. It's like for, for Bayhive people out there, it's my Sasha Fierce. It's like I get to step on stage and be the most confident, badass version of myself. And that's really served me. Um, but just like back in 2012, how I felt like I needed to make this transition, uh, into being a music performer, I'm starting to really feel in my core that I need to make another kind of creative transition. And, um, you know, I've had this wonderful era of touring, doing these 30, 35 show tours all over the country. And I don't think that's going to be in my future at the very least, not in, in any immediate future. So, um, I'm going to try to be creative in another way. I'm really hoping that filmmaking is involved in that. Uh, I'm hoping that I go back to prose writing. Um, so music, I think in one way or another, I'll always be a hobbyist making music and who knows, I'm not going to close any doors for myself or rule anything out. Um, but after these years of the pandemic and canceled tours and successful tour, finally, it's time for a huge breather for myself. And I think the, the Watsky era, you know, it's, it's about time for it to turn the page into a new chapter. No, I think that's a beautiful thing, George. Hell yeah. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the My Squires and Friends podcast, dude. Let's go. Let's go. I love you, bro. <laughs> love you too, dude. I'm going to let you get back to because you're in the middle of a tour right B- now. B- B- Big Mikey Squire, CT, stand up. Let's go. Dude. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I, I want to say for you, I love you, bro. Uh, you're the man. For those of y'all who don't, who know, who think you know, but don't really know, uh, Mike Squires is just a genuinely awesome dude. Uh, I'm grateful for you. Like, we met way back, but didn't really meet until like 16, 17. Yeah. And I'm just grateful to cross your path, man. You, you know, the grind set can be something toxic for a lot of people, but your grind is like so genuine. You just do things with a smile on your face. Like you don't let the world beat you down. And like, you're just a resilient, like good fucking dude. And I fucking ride. I'm Squire Squad. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, oh, snap. I was bring my my other one. <laughs> oh, let's go, dude. But like Squire Squad till I die, baby. Let's go, dude. Hell yeah, you're the fucking man. I love you. I speak on behalf of the whole Squire Squad family. I appreciate CT you, CT Massive. You're the fucking man. George, I love you, bro. I love you too, dude. I appreciate you, man. <laughs> I want to share with you guys my thought of the day. And my thought of the day is this. Regardless of what your career is, you want to try to go into things with a plan. You don't want to go in just freestyling everything. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if we take George, for example, you know, he dropped this nine track album, but it was part of a bigger picture. It's obviously important to focus on the now, but try to make those plays that really will help you out in the long run. And a little progress every day actually goes a long way. Try to make the plays that are going to put you in the best position to win. And most importantly, everybody, y'all know the drill. 
You just got to believe before the world does.